Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. This week, an exploration of some of our common yet perhaps unexpressed thoughts and emotions as we allow our bodies to be shuttled through space and time via subway trains. Taking a subway ride through our cities is one of the most common and familiar urban experiences out there. It is part of the daily grind, part of our mastery of the world around us. Waking up, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, checking yourself out in the mirror, walking with a quick click-clack through the streets, tap-dancing your way down the station stairway and onto the platform where you find your spot, equidistant from the other bodies there, standing and waiting with dignified indifference. At first, the air around you shifts a bit, the smallest of concussive hits. You glance down the tunnel and see the curve of the dank tunnel lit up by a turning train until its headlights are in view. Some around you take a slight step back from the edge of the platform, but not really completely behind that yellow caution line. They want to conserve a bit of that daring defiance. As the train slides into the station and slows down, everyone shifts positions. They're trying to understand the physics behind a train's movement in order to position themselves where the doors will settle and open. Everyone's a roulette wheel ball, waiting to fall into place. The doors open. Depending on where you are in the world, you either become part of an unspoken, orderly dance, allowing people to pour out of the cars first, or part of a hyperkinetic meshing and bouncing of bodies to and fro. A 17th century minuet dance? or a late 20th century mosh pit. All right, that's done. You're lucky to swiftly slide into a seat. There may be others around you that look more tired than you, or perhaps older, but hey, you deserve a seat every once in a while. Don't look at people too long, especially not at their eyes. Steal a glance. What's his story? How did he get such interesting creases on his face? Look at that one. Doing a crossword puzzle on a fastidiously folded newspaper, the paper held up in front of the face like a shield. Look at her, beautiful. Eye contact, shift your gaze away. Find a reflection, there, on that window. I is she staring at you? Maybe. But now the train has emerged into another station and the reflection is blanched out by the lights. Oh well. You don't need to look at the system map. You've done this thousands of times. You don't even need to look out the window and find the station sign. You can feel in your bones where you are, the same way you can feel when it's time to wake up in the morning. Okay, just to make sure, 14th Street, your stop is next. A couple more minutes of swaying through the tunnel. Get up a little before you get there. Find a spot near the door, here we are. Excuse me, coming through. No need to look at the wayfinding signs on the platform. Your muscle memory does the work. Veer to the left, sidestep the slow, clueless people. They are arterial blood clots. Go up the stairs and out into the bright and hot wall of air. Well, well, New York City, some guys try to pick up girls. It's unsuccessful tries. They don't realize that it was 
all in the eyes of Pablo Picasso, who was never called an asshole. He was only five foot three. Girls could not resist the stare, so Pablo Picasso is never called an asshole. All right. Now for that New York subway sound. For those of us who are subway geeks, there is a book that I would recommend. It is called In the Metro by Marc Auger, a French anthropologist. It is a small book where he muses about his experiences in the Paris metro and engages in an ethnography of its population. There's an interesting bit about the, the tendency to give stations the name of some historic figure, such as Charles de Gaulle in Paris, or of some feature of the area, for instance, the Bastille. Perhaps those in charge of naming such stations believe that the names would cause an appreciation of the history of the city or an appreciation of the unique places of the city. Being confronted with those names on a daily basis as one moves from one point to another might cause further reflection about Charles de Gaulle's contribution to France, for example. Auger, however, notes that the effort to increase civic knowledge and pride by naming subway stations in this manner actually might have the opposite effect. I mean, think of the times you have moved through a public transportation system and looked at maps and signs to orient yourself. Perhaps during your first encounter with these names, you may have had some sustained thoughts about what they referred to. But as time passes and familiarity with the transportation system increases, the names start to lose that historical reference or that regional reference, and they simply become scribbles or noises referring to that stop where your dentist's office is located. Sure, this is a bit of a generalization, but, but I think there's some truth to that. Auger does not condemn people for losing hold of the original meaning of those terms. Oddly enough, losing touch of the historical or the regional meaning of those names and then creating your own idiosyncratic associations with those names is part of the process of becoming a full-fledged member of the urban community or of the city that you are in. Auger asks you to think of times when you are commuting in your subway system and you witness a tourist near you. The tourist glances out of the window at the station you are in, smiles, and says with a sigh, Ah, the Bastille. It is at those moments when you set aside your primary associations, for instance, that's the place where my dentist is, there's a good bookstore a block away and crappy coffee at the corner, and then you start recalling the grander intent of the subway planners. It is a nice discussion, and there are several other sharp, incisive observations about our relationship to our subway systems, ranging from the complicity we feel traveling to mass events such as sporting events or political rallies, to highly personal memories that specific subway stations trigger in us. Again, for those of you who are subway geeks, I recommend it. It's a small book, quick, well, not a quick read, but a very fascinating, entertaining read. It's called In the Metro by Marc Auger.
One way or another, we all have that internal, intimate, and idiosyncratic way of processing our environment as we use our subways and other public transportation options. If I think about my attitude going through these experiences and I'm genuinely honest about them, I find within me a mix of childlike excitement, geek-like obsession over geographical planning, and a need to be cool and efficient about it all on the surface. How can a grown-ass man still feel giddy about public transportation? But, from the outside, I'm just another bloke with stubble on the train, an object of other people's own interpretations and narratives. In his book In the Metro, Marc Auger gives us a sustained ethnography of subway culture. He writes, quote, We cannot fail to notice that the activities of the subway traveler are numerous and varied. Reading is still prominent among them. Thus adventure, eroticism is poured into the solitary hearts of those who apply themselves with a pathetic constancy to sealing themselves off from those around them without missing their stop. There are also those who do nothing, who merely wait with apparently imperturbable faces on which the attentive observer can nonetheless sometimes overtake the passing of an emotion or a memory whose reason or object will never be grasped. Nothing is so individual, so irremediably subjective, as a single trip in a subway, and yet nothing is so social as one such trip. End quote. I love public transportation. When I was a child, my mother bought me an atlas, a heavy, leather-bound atlas. I would spend hours with my face hovering above those maps, my small fingers tracing paths from one place to another, not only visualizing major cities, but also the details of the roads and villages between those cities. Well, until I had the brilliant idea of using my magic markers and drawing out fictional subway and airline routes that made sense to me all over its pages. I grew up in Mexico City, spending my childhood and teenage years there, and I vividly recall my first subway ride. We decided to go to a movie theater in the center of the city. In my mind's eye, I think we went to see the Aristocats. But a couple days before we went, I insisted on getting the Mexico City subway system map and understanding the route we would take. I would read the title of the map, not quite understanding what the words referred to. Sistema de transporte colectivo, red del metro. I would trace the path we needed to take, absorbing the pastel-colored web of lines on the map and saying the names of all the stops on the way to that movie theater out loud. Auditorio, Constituyentes, Tacubaya, Juanacatlán, Chapultepec, Sevilla, Insurgentes, until we reached the final stop, Cuauhtémoc. One transfer point to jump out of Línea 7 and into Línea 1. At the time, those names still held mystery. What did they refer to? Was it something in the neighborhood, or was it some historical reference? I couldn't wait to unpack those names. But wait, there was more wonder in this experience. Each station had its own icon, its own pictogram. The original intent of these was to help those who could not read to identify the stations and still find their way around the city. Not only did I learn the names of the stations, I also poured over their pictorial identities. 
a butterfly, a grasshopper, an eagle's head, a spherical bowl of water. What did these mean? Why were they associated with these places? This provided me with weeks, no, no, years of investigative work to uncover the reasoning behind the selection of the names and the icons. As I grew older, I started to understand the whys behind them. For instance, on Línea Cuatro, the Talisman station was represented by a cute, rounded elephant silhouette. Okay, why? Perhaps it's near the zoo? No. During excavation of this metro line, workers bumped into the fossilized remains of a prehistoric woolly mammoth. Those remains are now part of the station itself, on exhibit for all to see as they move to and fro. Or to click-clack by without taking a second look at that. What about the name Talisman? Well, that story's not as compelling. The station is next to a Procter & Gamble soap factory, and the name of that factory is, yeah, Talisman. So, as I became a grown man and used the metro regularly, the sense of wonder did erode. The pictograms became the pragmatic, utilitarian symbols of everyday life. But deep down inside, they always have kept their power on me. I still feel that twinge of excitement when I see them. Those names and pictograms trigger a flood of memories, a, a Proustian rush of involuntary emotional tones, of tastes, of smells, and of formative events. All of those orbiting around those stations. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave reviews of this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where our podcasts, videos, and written content live. On that site is a companion article to this episode where you can find a wealth of relevant links. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Take your pick. And finally, a special shout-out to our recording studio, Clatter and Din, a beautiful and irreverent space in the heart of Seattle, Washington. Until the next time, this must be the place. Je suis perdu.